everybody, I'm Nick Knudsen with Stand Up and Holler. Wanted to put a brief message at the front of this episode, letting you know that we had some issues with the video file, having some technical difficulties, but we did record an episode this week and we do want to get it out. Um, we will be having some words with the Game Changer coordinator for our video files. We'll, we'll look into that. We'll get this resolved for next week, but we'll be back next week after the Missouri game as well. But we wanted to put this episode out just more in a podcast format. Enjoy the episode and go Gators. I'm Nick Newton, joined by Will Miles. Welcome to Stand Up and Holler on tonight's episode. We got LSU scoring the football, LSU scoring again, and maybe LSU scoring one more time. Uh, but hey, you know, we, we played a tough game. We were in it in the, in the second half. Uh, but we'll, we'll get the Missouri preview at the end before we get out of here. But, uh, we're just at the point in the season, Will, where you can't be surprised by the defense anymore, right? That's the, I, I, the level of outrage in terms of the, the poor defensive performance it is understood because we were at 700 yards of, of offense given up by LSU. I, I'm not sure that's always conveyed coming out of Gainesville. That, that That's a completely frustrating statistic for most people witnessing what's going on here. Uh we handed Jaden Daniels the Heisman on Saturday night. Jaden Daniels, 372 yards through the air, three touchdowns, and 234 on the ground. All right, two touchdowns on the ground, three touchdowns through the air. That's a Heisman Trophy performance right there. I, I think college, the college football media is loving this because there really hasn't been anyone that's jumped out to be the true front runner. And this performance, uh, we'll be watching a lot of these high, highlights for uh, the rest of the season. That second week in December, you can count on seeing more of the highlights from this game. But, well, aside from the atrocious defense, which we can talk about, the offense kept you in the game, and it doesn't feel like it. But if you go back and look, I promise you, you check it's there. Nine minutes left of the game. This is a three-point game. This is a three-point game at Death Valley with an LSU team that's got a killer offense, and your offense is keeping you in the hunt. You never really felt like at any point that Florida was truly the dominant team on the field. It felt more lucky to be in it at times with the way LSU was moving the ball. Florida was more methodical, but the Gators were in it and fighting late in the game. So despite the horrific performance on defense, that might be the silver lining that they're still in the game. They're still fighting and there was a chance down the road. On the other hand, you did give up 52 points, and you lost. Like I said last week, 36 points should win you a lot of games in the SEC. 35 should win you a lot of games in the SEC. Yeah, the offense hasn't really been a problem. Other than the Georgia game, they've been up over 35 points pretty much every game since uh, Vanderbilt. And, you know, they, they've been up over 30 points in the four games other than Georgia and are 2-2. Two and two. And and that's really where I think you you start to pick apart some of the things that are going on within within the team um, specifically. Um, you know, the, my main criticism of the offense is a few things. One is that they they just don't generate explosive plays more than twenty yards. Like their explosives tend to be twenty two, twenty three, twenty four yards. Mm -hmm. And when you're giving up eighty five yard just daggers from from Jaden Daniels all over the field. Eh, it's going to feel like the field's tilted. And that's what it felt like. It felt like the field was tilted all night. Now, LSU made a bunch of mistakes, and there's a reason why LSU's got three losses. And and part of that is because their defense is just as bad as Florida's. And then the other part is, is that is, and, and then the other part is, is that, you know, they dropped the kickoff, right? And turned that over and gave Florida a short field. They turned it over on fourth down on downs twice when they had the ball in Florida territory, once the one yard line. Um, and even then didn't get a punt out of Florida to put them in a, in a, in bad field position at that point. Um, so I, I think there were some defensive stops and people were going to give the defense credit there in the first half, but they were still lucky. They, 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 they gave up 9.8 yards per attempt in the first half, which sounds terrible until you realize they wound up at 11.5 for the game, which means they gave up 15.1 yards per play in the third quarter and 12.1 in the fourth quarter. Um, you know, they were outgained 192 to 73 in the second quarter. And I think that's where maybe the criticism comes in is that last two minutes of the half when Billy Napier decided to sort of just tuck and, and go into the halftime down three, that wasn't, that's not within the purview of what this Florida team can do given the limitations they have on the defensive side of the ball. Mm -hmm. But from an offensive perspective, I'm not upset at the way the team played. I thought Mertz was okay. I didn't think he was great. I thought P Ryan was, or not P Ryan. I thought, I thought ETN was, was really good. And I didn't, 
didn't think they got him the ball enough. I think Trey Wilson sort of disappeared at times. They didn't get him the ball enough. And I know Napier's going to say, well, you know, there are times where, you know, the defense dictates where you go with the ball, but LSU's defense shouldn't be able to dictate anything. They're they're and finally in that second half, Florida started running some power stuff and going right at LSU. And when they did, they had some success. Again, you get the you get the call it's overturned, which I don't understand how that's overturned. I'd like to hear the SEC's explanation for that one. On the, on the throw to Khalil Jackson, that again, the field just felt tilted every time. And and this is the thing about Florida is that in the Utah game, when they threw the interception down the red zone, defense couldn't get a stop. In the Kentucky game, when they threw the interception, hits off Boardingham's hands, gets intercepted. Still, eh, that one I give a little bit to Mertz, but still, um, you know, defense can't stop him. And then you get this one on the throw to Khalil Jackson gets overturned. You got to punt it away. Defense can't stop him. And, and that sort of has been the theme for Florida all year long. Um, the defense with Shamar James was serviceable without Shamar James is just awful. And, and we saw it, the, the running backs for LSU really took advantage of the linebackers for Florida. It looked, it reminded me, it reminded me of two things. It reminded me of the Joe Burrow game back in 2020 when, uh, when, or 2019 when Florida couldn't stop him at all. And Trask was going toe to toe with him, made one mistake on the interception in the end zone. And because Florida's defense couldn't stop him, they were always one score behind. Um, and that's kind of what this one felt like, felt a little bit like the LSU game a few years ago when Anthony Richardson came in. And again, they were one score behind and just couldn't get the stop. And then the other thing it reminded me of was the SEC championship game a couple of years ago against Alabama, where Alabama was always two scores ahead, Florida pull it to one score, right. then they pull ahead by two. And Najee Harris just absolutely terrorized. Florida's linebackers and that that's kind of what that reminded me of as well so I'm citing games where Florida's defense was not good at all as as the comps and I think that's sort of what what we get out of this one is the linebacker play had stuff to be desired I think everybody's play had 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 things to be desired and you know you just sort of smile and say LSU's a better team this year we didn't really expect to beat LSU coming into this season um you know, they were one of the few teams left on the schedule that had a glaring weakness on the defensive side of the ball. You weren't able to take advantage of that. And honestly, that's the thing about the last two minutes of the second half that bothered me is you didn't try to take advantage of the of the disadvantage or the, the weakness that LSU had in that particular moment. Instead, you got a little bit conservative and it cost you. Right. This this wasn't a game where you could give up three points or seven points when you had a possession and Florida basically just punted on that possession in order to run out the clock. And I get it. They didn't want to give up a quick strike to Jaden Daniels. And I can understand why they didn't want to give up a quick strike to Jaden Daniels. But the issue there is that LSU's defense is just as capable of giving up a big strike as Florida's defense is. And you had to sort of take that attitude. So I was a little bit disappointed that this didn't feel like the Tennessee um, approach from a couple of years ago where or last year where Napier knew that his team was limited knew the defense was going to struggle to stop the volunteers, knew the volunteers had a really good offense, knew Hendon Hooker was a really good player, and then just decided to go for it on fourth down all the time, was ultra aggressive, you know, really tried to put points on the board every time he had an opportunity. It cost him a couple of times, but a couple other times he he gained from it, and Florida came up just a little bit short in that one. This one, Florida comes up a lot more short than that just because I didn't think they were aggressive enough at times. Now, I have to harp on the defense a little bit here, Will, because the defense – was the glaring issue the other night. So going back to it, I would say if you if you watch in that game, there's just so many instances where LSU had guys completely surrounded by green. There was nothing around them. The blue jerseys, it took them a minute to get in the frame after they after they catch the ball. Or Jaden Daniels, how many times is he 15, 20 yards downfield? Nobody's even touched him yet. I saw several instances. You mentioned the linebacker play. Like uh, we like Scooby Williams. He's a good player. It seems like he's guessing on some instances. How much of this is a product of young players trying to play through some things right now where we're seeing some mistakes and how much of it is players aren't getting in the right position and how much of it is the talent's just not where it needs to be quite yet. It's young. It's developing. We're not quite what we need to be at an SEC level just yet. Well, so I mean, I, I think that there's there's two two things that you can say there. One is that the staff 
has made a conscious choice to go young, whether or not they completely made that choice or whether some of the upperclassmen made that choice for them, they made choices to go young. And some of the guys who've left, you know, Antoine Powell Ryland is might be the ACC defensive player of the year. Andrew Chatfield at Oregon state, I think has nine sacks. You got Hopper. Who's it? Who's at Missouri. You've got, um, you've got a, a bunch of other guys who've transferred out and have been relatively successful. Um, and I know that Napier came in wanting to set a tone, wanting to set a culture and maybe he needed to do that given the way the team given the way the team was sort of set up at the same time like we all know college football you gotta make compromises right Dabo Swinney goes around talking about integrity we all know that recruiting can't require integrity at all so if he's winning the recruiting battles out there his integrity is going out the window in certain instances and that's not a knock on Dabo it's just the way college football recruiting works I think it's sort of the same thing like you gotta make compromises you gotta have a couple of knuckleheads on your teams at times in order to in order to sort of get the juice going and you know you think about Golden State with Draymond Green right Right? He brings a lot to the table, but he also takes something off of it. And you got to be willing to take that stuff that he takes off of it to get all the things that he provides onto it. And whether Napier has that attitude in terms of being able to do that and whether he was able to given – again, we don't know everything that was going on from a culture standpoint when he came in. All that being said, they made a choice. They made a choice to go young. So now to say, well, we got young players, we need to be patient, I think is a little bit of a cop-out. I think you got to – you these guys are getting the reps. These are the guys you identified. These are the guys you brought in and evaluated. And these are the guys who need to perform. I think historically it's been very difficult to perform with teams that are this young. If he had, you know, a, a top 10 class and a top three class and they were performing poorly, I'd be like, Hey, there's still hope, but these weren't or still hope for these particular players, but they're not getting what they need to out of the 2021 class is really the problem. Guys like Jason Marshall, um, you know, Guys like Austin Barber, who who's been okay, but hasn't necessarily been great, and and I think those are the things you got to. So the the twenty twenty one class, the starters are Jason Marshall, Scooby Williams, Tyreek Sapp, Austin Barber, and Caleb Banks transfer in, right? Then you got Jake Slaughter, Desmond Watson, Marcus Burke, uh, and Rocco Underwood. Underwood's the long snapper. Not expecting a ton from him. Banks is a starter, but hasn't really been a difference maker. Slaughter has kind of been a starter because Egwakin's been out. Desmond Watson, a backup, but again, not a difference maker. Barber was, uh, was has, is a serviceable tackle. I wouldn't say he's been a great tackle. Sap, same thing at defensive end. Williams, you already mentioned some of the struggles he's had. He looked much, much better on the outside than he has since they've had to move him inside. And Jason Marshall just hasn't been the, the five-star player that we need on the outside. So that 2021 class is three classes out. That's where you would expect your solid, solid play to come from. And that's not a place where Florida has gotten, you know, I don't even, I wouldn't call any of those guys the best players on the team. And mm-hmm. I think that's where you run into a problem is you want your upperclassmen to be the best players on the team supplemented by younger guys, as opposed to if you look at the 2022 class where you've got Shamar James, you've got Trevor Etienne, you got Montrell Johnson as a, as a transfer. You've got Ricky Pearsall, you got Hayden Hanson, Arliss Boardingham. Like those are the best players on the team. You got Trey Wilson and Jordan Castell for 2023 makes some arguments about Castell recently, but you, but Trey Wilson obviously has been one of the best players on the team. So the best players on the team are from that 2022 and 2023 class. They don't have the supplementation that they need and i actually looked back just out of curiosity at um the uh so nick saban had uh <laughs> for his team he had eight or no he had nine all sac players his second season when the team all of a sudden made a big switch and turned things around but six of those all sac players weren't recruited by saban and then if you go to kirby smart his 2000 i think it's 17 team that jake Fromm took over at quarterback that team had six all SEC players and all six were not recruited by Kirby smart. So those teams that turned things around in year two turned it around with guys who'd been recruited by the previous administration. And we, we certainly criticized Dan Mullen a lot for his recruiting and for the attrition. And then Billy Napier came in and sped up that attrition. And that's what we're seeing right now is we're seeing a hole in the guys who are even just serviceable from 2018, 2000, 2019, 2020, and 2021. And you know, some of these guys have profiles where they should be serviceable. A guy like Jason Marshall should be more than serviceable. And, you know, we're not getting elite cornerback play out of Marshall. We're not getting elite cornerback play out of Kimber. We're not getting uh, really 
I mean, we got freshman safeties out there, and we're not getting elite play from guys like Princely Human Milan. Like, he's not bad, but he's not great. Tyreek Sapp, not bad, but not great. Austin Barber, not bad, but not great. Same thing for Egokin, same thing for a lot of these other guys. So I think I think when you look overall at the team, there are a lot of guys who are kind of average. Sounds and it like you're up- describing a 500 roster, Wolf. Well, it seems like that might be what it is. I'm not sure we're going to finish at 500. Going to have to uh, going to have to pull an upset off there. But yeah, that's exactly what I'm describing. Is that the roster itself? And I'm not sure I appreciated this coming into the season. But the roster itself, we sort of penciled in Jason Marshall to take a step forward. Kind of penciled in a guy like Austin Barber to be a really good left tackle because he was pretty good last year, right? Penciled in ETN to be to make a jump from a freshman All-SEC to All-SEC. And to be honest, the only guys who have a shot to make All-SEC are Ricky Pearsall and Trey Wilson. And it's funny because all offseason, we would have talked about wide receivers being one of the weak positions on on Florida's offense. And it turns out that's where all the All-SEC plays are coming from. And it's not coming from anywhere else. Look, it takes anywhere between six and nine All-SEC players to win the SEC championship. But if you go back and look at like Dan Mullen's teams in 2018, 2019, those teams had three to four All-SEC players. So if you want to win nine, 10, 11 games, you're going to need four All-SEC players. And that's what's happening with Florida is they've got two, maybe. I think Trey Wilson might not make it this year. He'll make the freshman team, but he might not make All-SEC. One, because he's a freshman and they'll make him wait. But two, He's getting a lot of those little the little shovel passes that are that are padding his stats a little bit. So he's only averaging like eight or nine yards an attempt or a catch. And so I do suspect that there might be an uh, a that he may not make it. So Florida probably ends up with one all SEC player this year. And when you go look at teams that have one all SEC player, they tend to be teams that went three and six in conference or three and five in conference and teams that had 500 records and teams that struggled at diff- at different times because um, the better teams end up getting those guys on the on the on, on the teams. And that's just sort of where Florida is right now. Give us hope for not giving up 100 points combined over the next two games. Um, I guess the, the hope would be that Florida state is somebody that this team is going to get up for against guys that they've all played against. So you just um, skipped right, right to Florida state. <laughs> Missouri. Well, We're giving up 50 to Missouri. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's uh, in, in Columbia, which hasn't gone real well for Florida, yeah. it's going to be cold. Um, you know, at some point they're going to—they're either going to get a chip on their shoulder and rally around Napier, or things are going to start to sort of fall apart. And I haven't felt like things have fallen apart. The effort at times on certain plays has looked suspect, but the effort overall for the team has not looked suspect. Um, you know, in terms of like they battled like the, the South Carolina game a couple of years ago, that was sort of the beginning and the end for Dan Mullen. Right afterwards, you had Hevesy and and Grantham get fired. That was something where the team just looked flat, looked uninspired, and didn't look like they wanted to be there. That has not happened yet. And so as long as that doesn't happen, I think they have a shot in both of these, but it's going to take a lot, right? LSU tried to give them that game in a lot of different ways. Like if they had just run a read option on third or fourth down, on the on the drive where they got stuffed at the one, I think Jaden Daniels walks in, you know, completely unscathed. I think they didn't want to do it because he can't. He was coming off a concussion, and they didn't necessarily want to run that play. Um, they ran one read option that I could see the entire game, um, and, and so they didn't necessarily want to run that play. And and Florida kind of got off the hook because of that. Then they give him the kickoff and uh, you know fumble that one back over, and that gives Florida a free seven points and allows Florida to sort of get back into it even after they'd given up that touchdown after they'd had a three and out to start the half. Um, they're not going to be able to do that. Florida's going to have to play a perfect game. And then the defense, Missouri and Florida State, Missouri specifically, is not some dynamic offense, but they're not they're not awful. And so that's going to be the question. The question is going to be, you know, is the 11.5 yards per attempt that Florida gave up against LSU an aberration because LSU is just that good? Or does Florida make every offense better than it already is, which is what the answer has been all year, which is why, I mean, 50 points is an exaggeration, but I think Florida's going to need 42 to win one of these next two games. And that's just sort of the reality. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's tough, tough sledding on the defensive front right now, but you are seeing a lot of young guys get some playing time. That's about the only positive I can pull out of that at the moment. Um, You know, also you got a first year coordinator 
who's learning on the job a little bit. I, I think Austin Armstrong has an amazing pedigree. I understand why he's in the position he is at the moment. Um, but you'd like to see some adjustments made here in the next two games to give us a shot on the defense side, side of the ball, especially when the offense seems to actually be clicking here down the stretch. Well, you got 311 yards out of Graham Mertz and a touchdown. Uh, you saw a combined on the ground. We had a combined 34 touches for uh, ETN and Montreal Johnson. Johnson had another six catches too for uh, 60 uh, for 65 yards here. So a lot of touches for Johnson, ETN, and the offense was cooking. In addition, you had another uh, yet yet another 13 touches for Pearsall and Wilson. That's what you want to see pretty much game to game out of this offense. You really couldn't do much more to get it done. I know you talked about the tough call with Khalil Jackson on that deep ball that was on the third down play where they initially called it a catch and then they they overruled it. But it's not the explosive offense that you see like out of an LSU where LSU has a truly elite offense. But it's just been a steady offense that can march down the field, sustain long drives, and put you in position to score fairly consistently in most games this year there's been a steadier offense than we saw last year in my opinion that that's the interesting thing i'm pulling out of the lsu game here is if you go game to game consistency wise i think it's been a steadier offensive effort across the board it's not the best offense we've ever seen at florida but it's much better than some of the offenses you saw in in other seasons where florida has struggled in recent memory yeah, I don't, I don't know about that necessarily. I think Anthony Richardson was um, effective at times. His legs certainly brought something to the to the forefront. And if you look at the rushing yards, if you put quarterback rushing yards into Florida's rushing total for this year already, all of a sudden you're starting to look, you're starting to see an offense that's rushing very similarly. You know, Richardson averaged six and a half yards per rush. Mertz is averaging just over eight yards per throw. And so the comparison there, I think what it really boils down to is Florida's offense last year was much less consistent consistent and much more explosive Mm -hmm. this year. It's much more consistent and much less explosive. And I don't know whether that combination is any better. Now I think overall this year, so Florida is 22nd overall in 10 plus yard plays. So they got 162. Then they're 56th and 20 plus yard plays, 105th and 30 plus yard plays and 106th and 40 plus yard plays. So really what it boils down to is they get a lot of 12 yard gains. They get a lot of 22 yard gains. They don't get a lot of 50 yard gains. They don't take the ball to the house very often at all. And, you know, there are offenses that are like that. That's fine. But the fact that their defense is what their defense is is a problem, right? So if you look at this game against LSU, they had a 24-yard pass to Hayden Hanson, a 33-yard pass to Ricky Pearsall, 21-yard run for ETN, a 20-yard pass to Marcus Burke, and then a 24-yard pass to, to Wilson. If you look at LSU, 38-yard pass to Neighbors, 41-yard pass to Thomas, 38-yard run by Daniels, 85-yard run by Daniels, 27-yard run for Daniels, 45-yard pass to Williams, 51-yard run for Daniels, 52-yard pass to Williams, 44-yard pass to Neighbors, 37-yard pass to Thomas. So not only was one sixth of their plays. So 10 explosives in 61 plays. Not only was a sixth of it explosive, but they averaged 46 yards per explosive, which means they converted every explosive into a score. So every one of those that I that I named off there either led to a touchdown or a field goal. And sometimes there were two on one drive. If you look at Florida, the first one, they had a fumble. The last one, they turned over on downs, and then one, two of them came on the same drive. So they took five explosives and turned that into two touchdowns, whereas LSU took 10 explosives and turned that into probably 35 or 40 points. And and that, to me, is the difference, is when you roll off a 20-yard run, it puts you in position for a field goal. When you put off a 50-yard run, oftentimes that's a touchdown. You've gone the whole way. And even if you didn't, it's put you deep in the red zone. It, you've got the defense on its heels, those sorts of things. That's the stuff that Florida's offense just can't do this year. Um, again, I think they're limited. I think they're limited at the quarterback position. We've sort of seen that all year. Um, again, I, I think Graham Mertz has come back to earth a little bit over the past few weeks. He's now down to 73% completions. He was up over 80% after the Vanderbilt game. So he's 62, 73, 61, 68 over the last four games. Not bad, 
but he's also 8.8 yards per attempt, 6.8, 6.7, 8.2. Now he's got six touchdowns and zero interceptions, but his yards per completion is still just 11. QB rating the last four, 157, 149, 142, and 146. That's just barely above average, and he doesn't bring anything in the running game at all. So, you know, in those four games, he's he's six for negative seven, five for negative 32, four for negative three, and seven for seven. So my yards above replacement has him for the season at negative. 0.28, so a little bit below average. Had him in the LSU game at 0.13, just slightly above average. And, you know, that's the thing is that yards above replacement is an efficiency stat. Mertz has not been that efficient. What he has been is very consistent. And, uh, you know, I tend to think that the efficiency is more important, and I think that sort of shows up over the course of a game and over the course of a season. So when, when you look at your preseason expectations for Mertz, would you say that I personally, my feel on this is that as as much as we've struggled in some of these big games, right? I I thought there was a there was a definitive ceiling on what March could be coming in as a starter. I think that Napier has gotten really the high end of what you can hope for out of March based on his career profile at Wisconsin, right? And like I know there's a lot of people that I I I think we. I have been tough on Mertz. I think I'm going off a lot of what what I saw at Wisconsin with him. I think he's played pretty well in a Gator uniform compared to what we saw in Madison. That that's why I, I it's the high end of what you could have hoped for when Mertz transferred in. So I wrote an article in March that sort of lined out what I thought his floor and his ceiling would be, and really his ceiling was 25 touchdowns, five picks. Um, and his ceiling quarterback rating I had at 154.7. And right now for the season, he's 157.5. And I had his ceiling for yards above replacement at negative 0.21. He's at negative 0.28. So he really has hit exactly what I expected that ceiling to be. And kudos to Mertz and kudos to Napier for getting that out of out of him and being able to hit his ceiling. The problem is, is I don't think that ceiling is great. Right. It's it's average. That's he is an average quarterback. A QB rating of 157 is above average, but when you factor in all the the just nothing that he brings in the running game, I think that impacts him him negatively in terms of overall the value that he brings. And if he threw a bunch of the balls away and didn't take sacks, there was a play against uh I was a little bit late getting home um for, for the game against Arkansas, and somebody texted me. Mertz seems unable to throw the ball away. And I knew exactly what play he was talking about when I was rewatching the game. Cause there was a play where he ran out of bounds three yards behind the line of scrimmage on a first and 10. Mm. And he was, he didn't need to run out of bounds. He could have just tossed it three yards ahead and it would have been an incompletion. Wouldn't have been a sack. Wouldn't have lost three yards. And he lost three yards there. Now that's not every running play that he's had. And Florida's offensive line has problems as well, which has made things made things even worse. But if you looked at Mertz at Wisconsin, one of his weaknesses was that he took a lot of sacks and a lot of negative plays in the running game. And this year, that has not changed. His his throwing, I think, has been much, much better. He's been much more consistent. And he's been able to he's been able to uh, really not turn the ball over, which has been one of the biggest things. 17 touchdowns. Which to is a sign of growth, by the way. This is, this is someone, unlike the rest of the roster, where we're talking about the youth movement here, this is a guy, you're seeing him maybe grow from his experiences – Maybe the next step here is figuring out, hey, let's give up on this play. Let's throw that ball away. Uh, That's so, the next so, step of the evolution. Because so, it's, it's a high likelihood at this point. I think what we've seen, 10 games, that's enough of a resume this season. Where it's a, I think, is it a fairly safe bet that we're going to see him as the starter next year to come out the gate? So I think so. I think the the so there are a couple of things that, that I want to make sure that I at least caution people on. One is that Missouri and FSU have two of the better defenses that that Mertz will have faced all year. Um, and so it's entirely possible that a statistical profile looks considerably worse right. after the next two games. We'll see. Right. I think 10 games is a pretty decent sample size. And I expect him to play at about the level he has. I think this is probably he has taken a step up. The other thing, though, that I would say and I would caution people is very, very rarely do you see someone take big steps two years in a row in fact you almost never see quarterbacks take two steps overall you'll see a guy like burrow go from average to great you'll see a guy go from bad to average you'll see a guy go from average to good um 
see that jump and the and there is a jump that is real you can usually see that with quarterbacks who have multiple years behind center but what you and especially now that we've got guys changing schemes where a scheme may fit somebody better and certainly there was a lot of talk before the season that more shotgun not being under center being able to have more control over the offense not just running into the line setting up a bunch of third and 12s would be a positive thing for Mertz I think all that stuff has been true at the same time um, it's very rare to see someone take two straight leaps. The leap that Daniels has taken this year is actually very surprising to me, given he took a pretty decent leap last year coming from uh, coming from Arizona State. At the same time, a lot of the stuff that he's done this year, um, you know, and he's been much, much better this year, but a lot of the stuff that he's doing this year was sort of building on last year. Um, but that's rare. It's really rare to see two big leaps in a row. So I don't think we should expect it. I think we should expect that whatever we get out of Mertz this year for when you look at his total, total body of work, it's probably very similar to what we'll get next year. And that's not bad. It's just bad when you have a defense that can't stop anybody. So overall, where does Florida need to improve if they're going to have Mertz come back a quarterback next year? has nothing to do with Mertz taking another leap. Because even if they had a, if they had the number one offense in the country, they'd be LSU. We'd be sitting here at seven and three, ticked off about losing a game to Georgia that we never should have lost but couldn't stop them, and ticked off at probably losing a game to some other team that that we just couldn't stop, couldn't get off the field. And we're sitting there seven and three going, oh, God, if all we could do, if we could stop someone, we might win a title. And it turns out Florida has an ex- has a recent experience with that back in 2020. So we know exactly how the LSU folks feel right now. And, you know, it, it's just – this offense is not at that level, which means the defense is going to have to pull more of its weight. And as of right now, it's not doing that, obviously. Well, I, I know Billy's taking a lot of bullets right now. <laughs> He's taking a lot of lot, lot of heat. And so I think you got to be fair and point out what, what he's doing well. And I think, you know, Wisconsin fans watching Graham Mertz this year is probably like, who's this guy? So I, I do, I definitely think he's gotten the high end of what he's capable of and Mertz is performing at the high end of what he's capable of as well. And that's not a shot at Mertz. I promise that's a compliment. I promise that's a compliment. And that's something that I do think that uh, you got just, just looking for some, some positive aspects here. So by all means shred the fact that we gave up 700 yards. Well, like we, we should shred that fact. Uh, And I'll say this. I love Billy Napier's demeanor in general. I, I think as a leader, he's somebody that you're proud to have as the face of the program. I can say I always personally liked Dan Mullen. I, I kind of like I, I think he had a sense of humor, a little bit of a goofy sense of humor at times. He had fun at times, but he also could put his foot at times and quite frankly just look like an ass at times, right? McElwain never got it from day one. Didn't didn't totally understand it. Never really connected with it. Wasn't a guy that you're like, oh, that's our cut. That's our guy right there. I, I never felt that way from day one with McAvoy. Never really connected for me. But I will say, so so when I say the face of the program and that Billy is is like our uh, that type of guy that you want out there representing your school as the football coach. I I I really do believe in him in that aspect, that CEO type aspect. I would love for him to come out. And I know he's the players coach and I know he's a friendly guy with the players and that it, the players seem to love him, but man, you give up 700 yards. Like I don't need to hear that lunch was successful. Like we had a successful lunch today. Like, it, you know, we were really trying to get the right recipe down. We got it down. Let's not, let's not forget the fact that we also tied our shoes correctly. And like, we don't need to list everything we did. Like we could talk about the game. Like we could, there's things you say inside the locker room. And there's things you say to the fans. And right now at the University of Florida, we're not used to giving up 52. We're not used to giving up 700 yards. How many years are we about on 115 years of football? We've never given up 700 yards before. Maybe a little bit of fire about that. Like I I know they're in the game in the fourth quarter, but did they rise to the challenge? Not like it's there's times in the press conferences where there's got to be a little more acknowledgement of what's going on on the field i i keep joking that i i want to slap a white house logo behind some of these press conferences because it's like you know i i don't need to have, you don't need to piss on my leg tell me it's raining you know like i i, I just like there's there are there's times where you just got to call it for what it is and i think like florida two of the two of the florida greats steve Spear and urban meyer 
I went back and I looked up some old Urban press conferences after a loss, and after the 2010 loss to Alabama, this was like the Monday presser, I believe. He, he in there, he op- his opening statement, the first words out of his mouth was, were, we failed miserably. And it's like, you don't have to go come down on specific players. You don't have to, if you don't want to do specific call-outs, that's not your style. That's fine. But you'd like to see a little more juice in those situations to at least call out the fact that we understand that 700 yards isn't acceptable. And I know he gets that. Like, I'm not doubting that he gets that, but I think if you're reevaluating processes in the off season, I think something is just be a little more real with the fans uh, on that. Be, they, it's your chance to communicate to your players from behind the podium. It's also your chance to communicate to, to the fans and the media and everybody else. So I, I, I would love to see a little more intensity when you get your butts beat, giving up 700 yards and putting a guy in a bronze trophy forever. I, I That's personal opinion from the last few press conferences that, that, I'd like to put out there. Well, I mean, he's not making any friends by after the Arkansas game. He basically said, other than the missed PAT and the missed field goal, special teams was much better this week. And you're like, yeah, I don't want to hear that. I want like, and neither do the fans, right? The fans sit there and look and go, yeah, but everybody else can execute a PAT and everybody else can figure out what to do coming out of a timeout when they get in position for a field goal. And so the fact that we don't know how to do that, is a problem. And I think there needs to be an acknowledgement that that's a problem that 130 other FBS teams can do that sort of stuff. And if Florida can't do that, that there's an actual problem. Um, It's not the way Napier operates. Hasn't been the way he's operated since he's gotten here. And so to expect him to be somebody different is I think an unfair expectation, but it does add to the, it, it adds to the consternation when you don't feel like the coach is flogging himself, right? No one ever doubted that Urban Meyer, when Florida was losing, cared more about losing than any of the fans did. Right. I mean, the guy, the guy damn near killed himself because he cared about winning so much. And he's sitting there like texting recruits right after winning the winning the national championship. Now he looks back on that and says that was a sickness, right? Like I was out of control. But I look at it and go, that's why you won two national championships is because you had that level of intensity. And, you know, I I read a couple of years ago, a book by Seth Wickersham um, that was a biography of Kraft, Brady and Belichick. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I came out of that thinking was, was it worth it? Like Belichick had like just burned all these relationships that he had to the ground in furtherance of trying to win. And it was very clear that that was his drive. And you think about the way Brady and Belichick ended there in New England, as opposed to riding off into the sunset together, Brady leaves to try to prove that it wasn't just Belichick. And now Belichick's holding on for dear life, trying to prove it wasn't just Brady. And, you know, you know, those guys are ultra competitive and, and want to be able to prove that they were a big part of what happened. And I think we all recognize that they were a big part of it, but that fire is the thing that sort of defines them. And, Look, I think there are t- there are people who are wired like that and people who aren't. And Billy Napier doesn't seem to be wired like that. So to expect him to be this rah-rah guy who's gonna go out there and, right. and 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 do that, I think is 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 a bad expectation. What I would say though is is that there should be an expectation of reality that you shouldn't sit there and go, well, special teams are fine except for those two screw ups that nobody else has. That's and, what and I'm when talking he- about. You don't have to be the Urban Meyer intensity. Like, and by the way, I think Billy Napier is plenty intense about different things. I think he purposefully has that demeanor toward facing the media and I can understand keeping it cool. I can understand all those things. And I'm not asking him to, to be a different person, but it's, it's the word, the phrase you use, just acknowledge reality. You can say in a calm manner, we're we're not going to get a super animated Billy, like, but you can say in a calm manner that like, yeah, that's an unacceptable performance on, on the defensive side of the ball. Right. Like we know that doesn't meet our standards around here. Well, so let me, so that has been a, a, a pattern throughout the season. So when they had, um, you know, when they had the two number threes on the field against Utah, right. the comment was, well, this was a situation we haven't been in before, blah, 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 blah. Right. When, when they had a guy run out late for a PAT against Arkansas for a field goal attempt against Arkansas, it was, well, we had a guy injured and there was a miscommunication on the sideline, those sorts of things. Right. He just sort of like, there are um, urban Meyer would not allow that miscommunication to happen. Because the person who miscommunicated probably wouldn't 
would like rue the day <laughs> that he miscommunicated, right? Like there was a fear associated with that sort of stuff. And not every coach rules by fear, but but the the lack of accountability at the lectern for the things that are going on, I think does disturb some fans. Like we want to fans want to believe that Napier is down in the trenches with them, not above them and saying, well, I can figure this out. It's like, we, we can, we can look, we don't believe you. I think that's the big problem. I said this after the Utah game when he was like, you know, everything was clean in practice this week. Uh, you know, we, we made some mistakes that are uncharacteristic. Everything was clean in practice. Like, I don't believe you because you couldn't line up right twice. And if, and you know, if, if you can't get into a legal formation, you can't convince me that everything was clean during practice because, or it means you weren't practicing the things that you then tried to execute in the game on Saturday um, because the crowd should have nothing to do with you actually lining up properly. And that's, you know, so that's the issue is that you got people feeling like he's not telling them the truth as opposed to, right. um, you know, as opposed to just him having a more mellow demeanor. So yeah, tell the truth, tell it like it is and, and move forward. He would be well-served to do that. I'm just not sure he's going to. It's okay to be process oriented and not get emotional and not where I'm not, I, I know you're, you're not going to get an urban Meyer replica behind the lectern. And you're definitely Steve Spurrier is about one of a kind. You're never going to get a Spurrier again. I mean, there's very few people that can even come close to what Spurrier was behind a mic, but I, I'm okay with the fact I want him to put his own stamp on things, but just, it's like you said, just, just tell us if, if something's not good in a un, non-emotional process oriented way, you can communicate that that wasn't good. And that that's, that's the only thing that I've seen the last few weeks. That I go, Oh, let's, let's, uh, let's get that one together a little bit because it, it's tough to listen to. And I think it, it's going to rub people the wrong way. I think the supporters of the program is going to rub them the wrong way. I feel like, and you just want to hear, you want to hear that, you know, that's not it. Like, Hey, we got young guys out there. And I think if you do listen to it through and I'm picking some things, I'm picking some things within their own context. There's bigger context to these things. Obviously, if you listen to it through, he does stress that the team's young. I think he tries to explain, but I almost think he tries to explain to the outside world like you would to the inside world a little bit and you try to communicate it in like, well, we're working on getting better. Like, okay. Like we know, but you can also talk about that. There's a different way you could talk to the outside world than you do the inside world. And, well, you can say uh, what, it, so there's a, there's a great, um, there's a great scene in a movie bull Durham where, uh, where crash Davis for some of you younger people, you may not have seen this, but, but crash Davis is a catcher walks over to Tim Robbins character, new Kalush, and shows him his shower shoes. And they got a bunch of fungus on it and they're in the minor leagues. And he's like, these are, these are filthy, clean them up. And he's like, why? He's like, once you get to the majors, you can have whatever you want to grow on those, on those shower shoes. And the press will think you're colorful right now. It just means you're a slob. And that's what I think of in terms of what you're saying is Billy Napier can say whatever he wants. If Florida's nine and three, right? <laughs> because the expectations for this year were seven and five, six and six, something like right. that. But you're five and five about to end the season on a five game losing streak and end up five and seven. Miss a bowl game, miss those important practices for all these young guys that you're talking about. And so right now you're a slob because the shower shoes have fungus on them and you haven't made it to the show yet. So if Steve Spurrier had been as brash as he was and had gone six and six, he wouldn't be beloved. He's beloved because he won SEC championships and national championships. And the winning made the brashness drive the rivals nuts. And that was part of the fun for that entire thing. Now, today, we might actually have a different opinion, because if you go look at his success against Bobby Bowden, he actually struggled quite a bit against Florida State, has a losing record against Bowden and Florida State. In today's world, that might have been an area for criticism. And when he was when he was brash in those particular games, um, especially when you think about like the choke at Doke and those sorts of things um maybe it would have just in today's media environment it would have been a little bit different but spurrier got to be brash because he won like and that's the deal you win national championships you can say whatever you want you win sec championships you can say whatever you want and and this was dan mullen's issue is he was winning he was winning he was winning january you know big time bowl games but not playoff games and the expectation of florida's playoff games so you can't stick your foot in your mouth about recruiting when you're winning peach bowls you got to go win playoff games and then you can talk about it being recruiting season and those sorts of things. Um, same thing for us champ, same thing for McIlwain is those, you know, the, we'll get it fixed. We'll get it fixed. We'll get it fixed. Rings hollow after a while. You actually need to show progress over time. And, and that's the deal, right? Is that Billy Napier 
when, you know, I've, I've been saying this now for, for months is he's going to go as far as DJ Lagway carries him. And if DJ Lagway comes in as an outstanding player at the quarterback position, Florida's going to start to win a bunch of games. And when they win a bunch of games, then Billy Napier will be able to say whatever he wants during press conferences. And we'll be seen as negative people. If we pick out things from his press conferences and sort of focus in on them, um, you know, go, well, what did he really mean here? And that sort of stuff. The problem is, is it's the same story week after week, after week, after week, Florida can't stop anybody. They make issues. They make problems. They make, um, they have issues on special teams there's at least one or two just mechanical or game management flubs in every game and that's what we see rinse repeat every single game and it's been that way since 2022 because it was that way last year it's been that way this year and so if all you're getting is the same thing over and over the only thing you have left is to pick apart the press conference which is sort of what you're doing again i think people love napier if he's 10 and 2 and and lagway's chucking the ball all over the place but if Mertz comes out there and plays like he did last year and the defense is just as bad next year, well, people won't love those press conferences because Florida's going to be losing games. That's just the reality. I don't think it needs to happen every time you lose. I think there are certain instances, though, where you can convey a little bit to the fans. It's just – it comes across – it's like you said, it just comes across as not genuine at times where I do think that's – he one of his strengths is he is very genuine, it seems like, across the board. When, he, when you're talking about – you know, the, the five things he did well after when you, you got smoked on defense, it's like, okay, all right. <laughs> like it's, I get it, but hey, they didn't, they didn't give up, they didn't give up go. any third down conversions in the second half. LSU was, was over, yeah, over one in yeah. the second half on third Florida, LSU two for six on the night, third down. Florida's just dominant on that third down defense, two for six for LSU. Of course, you have to have a third down once in a while to, uh, to hold them, but. Hey, overall, hey, we won over- the t- we won time of you 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 wrote me earlier. We won time of possession by ten minutes, man. You gotta look on the bright side. Hey, man, damn damn well inside of the stat sheet. Why can't we do it now? Why can't we do it now? Hey, overall, I I do believe in in what Napier's building overall, and I I I think if you go back and look at our magazine, we had this season pegged pretty decently in terms of the fact that this was going to be a growing year. We've certainly seen that. We've seen a little bit of the roller coaster ride. Uh, we, we've almost seen the offense and defense flip roles from the beginning of the season to now. It's been an interesting 10 games. It's been an interesting 10 games. And uh, hopefully you got two more shots to pull off the upset to get bowl eligible. Man, I'd love to do it against FSU. But beating Eli in Missouri would also be interesting, Will. Uh, yeah, cashed the- in a lot of chips in that Arkansas game, and so need to get a few of them back in one of these last two, <laughs> that's for sure. Missouri coming into the game 8-2. and two. Uh, two tempo, uh, two losses, ten point loss to LSU, in which they they were up in that game deep into the second half. Very competitive game at Georgia. This is definitely Eli Drinkwitz's best team. Speaking of uh, being brash without not much results behind your name, uh, Eli Drinkwitz will Mizzou if they win this game. Will this is going to be win number nine? They've only won nine or more in a season eight times in 122 seasons of football. So. It's pretty significant what's going on in Columbia this season. Brady Cook taking a big step this season, throwing for over 2,700 yards to this point, 17 TDs. And Cody Schrader, the running back, played for Division II Truman State from 2018 to 2021 before walking on Mizzou last season. Six games of 100 yards or more on the ground, including the last three, went off for 205 yards and one touchdown against Tennessee last week, over 1,100 yards, 11 touchdowns on the season. And of course that wide receiver room's pretty solid, but over half the production, 111 out of the 205 receptions on the season going to Luther Burden and Theo Weiss. So two big time receivers, that running back Schrader and Cook, the offense has been very solid for Missouri this year. Uh, Overall, only, uh, only two opponents, have held Mizzou under 30, one of them being the mighty Blue Raiders out of Middle Tennessee State, and the other one being the Georgia Bulldogs. So I, this is a tough Missouri offense. As a Gator fan coming off of this LSU game, the one thing you could say is maybe the Heisman contention, maybe, maybe there'll be a uh, another contender next to Jalen Daniels after next to Jaden Daniels after this game here. Well, Mizzou's offense well, you- looking pretty solid this season so far. I mean, you sort of hope Florida takes that personally, right? That Jaden Daniels came out and just ran them over and that they come out ready to go in, in this game against Missouri. Like at some point, who's when are you going to get a chip on your shoulder and go out there and actually prove that you're better than what you've shown on the field so far? So 
Missouri, very, very good team. What I would say is if you look at points for and points against, it, there's not as big a differential as you'd think. So 32.6 points for, 23.7 against. Those are FBS teams. So over a 10-game schedule, you'd expect them to be six and a half and three and a half. So six and four, seven and or yeah, uh, seven and four, six and six and no, I'm sorry, seven and three or cut, six cut, and four. Cut. Just start it over. I'll, I'll cut it up. All right. Three, two, one. Go. You know, from a scoring potential, their perspective, they're not really that differentiated from Florida. So 32.6 points per game against FBS opponents, 23.7 against. That's a 65% winning percentage. So six and a half and three and a half is sort of what you'd expect their winning percentage to be. So either six and four or seven and three. Still a good team, but they're eight and two, right? So they've gotten a little bit lucky over the course of the year. Now, Florida, if you do the same analysis, they've actually been outscored against the FBS opponents, 27.3 to 29.7. That That's a record of 4.6 to 5.4. So Five and five is really right for Florida over a five-game span um, when, when you look at their scoring differential. But you think about Missouri could kind of be a six-win team. Florida could be a five-win team. This could very easily be a six and four versus five and five matchup as opposed to an eight and two. So that's the first thing I'd sort of take from it is these these teams are not massively apart. If you looked at a team like Georgia and its scoring differential, you'd be looking at a team that's predicted to be nine and one. And, um, you know, Georgia obviously is differentiated from that. And actually LSU scoring differential gives them a better record than Missouri just because their offense is so good. Um, but look, when you look at every statistic across the board, whether it's points per game, yards per play, yards per rush, yards per pass on offense and defense, Missouri's better in mm -hmm. every single category. And so then if you even go to like explosive plays, Missouri, 10 plus yard plays, I told you 162 for Florida ranks 22nd, Missouri also 22nd. They've given up 162, but then they've got 59 20 plus yard plays. So they're ranked 13th, 18th in 30 plus yard plays and, and 28th in 40 plus yard plays. They've had 14 20 plus yard plays compared to seven for Florida. So Missouri is able to hit a big play when the big play presents itself in a way that Florida is not able to. And on the defensive side of the ball, they're sort of worst case scenario for Florida. 10 plus, they're 95th, then 80th and 20 plus, 36 and 30 plus, and three and third and 40 plus. So they're not giving up those big plays that Florida kind of needs and you would like to see Florida get over the course of over the course of the game. So everything, and, and then I guess the last part is if you go to quarterback, Brady Cook has a QB rating of 160.7, which isn't much higher than Graham Mertz's 157.5, but he averages 0.6 yards per attempt more, so 9.5 to 8.9, and he's not a nothing on the ground. So 81 rushes for 228 yards. So I have his yards above replacement at 1.28. Mertz is at negative 0.26. So Florida has a disadvantage at the quarterback position, a disadvantage at defense, a disadvantage on the offensive line. If you start looking at the statistics in terms of, in terms of sacks, um, there are way more sense. So sacks per game, uh, Missouri ranks 19th, Florida's 96th, tackles for loss, Missouri's 58th, Florida's 107th, sacks per game allowed, Missouri's 57th, Florida's 115th, tackles per loss allowed, um, 76th for Missouri, 95th for Florida. So in every category that I can find that I think actually portends what's going to happen on the field, Missouri is significantly ahead of Florida. And so it's going to take turnovers. It's going to take maybe even an injury, and I hope nobody gets injured, but it might take something like that. It's going to take somebody stepping up and getting, you know, stepping in front, high pointing a ball on a deep throw where they're actually, where they're actually able to stay in phase. It's going to take burden, maybe fumbling the ball on one of those little screens they give them where you put a helmet right on the ball, you fumble it and you take it the other way. Florida's probably going to need a defensive score in this one in order to win it. Um, otherwise I think you're just looking at covering best case scenario because Missouri is clearly the better team. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, and what's the spread right now? Uh, I think it's 11 and a half, 11 and a half. Yeah. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't checked it yet, man. That's uh, yeah, it's a tough matchup. It's a tough matchup this week, especially when you consider their offensive firepower. You mentioned as well too. Well, the defense is just uh, it's, it's been pretty solid for these tigers. Uh, you know, the defense, I, I think for them has been more of the strength the last couple of years, but they're, they're really, kind of putting it all together this year and having a good run. Uh, only two opponents have topped the 30-point mark. You had Georgia score 30 on them, and LSU, of course, had the 49-39 win over them uh, around about, about a month ago at this point. So not not giving up huge numbers to the opponents, Will. We're seeing in recent weeks even uh, outside of that Georgia game, this defense has been pretty stingy. 
Yeah, I mean, they're not great. So they're 45th in points per game allowed, 52nd in yards per play. That's average, maybe a little bit above average um, overall. Obviously, there's 133 teams in, in FBS, so if you're 52nd. The difference is, is that they're pretty consistent all across the board. The one place where they haven't been great is their 70th in yards per rush, so 4.2 yards per rush. Now, Florida's 94th, so like I said, Florida's worst in every category. At the same time, it, this isn't some, this isn't an offense that's going to necessarily dominate, but they're 46th in yards per rush allowed. They're 49th in yards per pass allowed, so very balanced. This is not something where I look look at it and go, oh, there's some glaring hole that Florida's going to be able to take advantage of. It's something where I look at it and I go, you know, Florida's going to have to do some things they haven't done so far this year and certainly haven't done in the last four or five games in order to get the victory here. And that's the thing is you've got to bank on them doing something out of character in order to get the win. And I think that's one of the reasons why certainly Missouri is favored by as much as they are. Yeah. Well, let's uh, that's a quick, quick preview of the Missouri game here this week. Let's talk about uh, a couple of decommits. You saw Jamonta Waller jump to Auburn, big time flip there for the Auburn Tigers. Well, and later in the weekend, you saw Wardell Mack flip to Texas, a cornerback out of, I believe, New Orleans. He's flipping to Texas here. So I know that's been a concern over, <laughs> over many, many fans have been concerned over this 2024 class that if the results on the field started to trend down, how would it affect the 2024 class? I, I'm not panicking. Two guys, well, it's it's the NIL era. I, I think you're going to expect high-level players to be the types of guys that flip here and there. So you're not, you're not going to see it a whole lot, but uh, I, I do think that I'm not totally shocked that a couple of guys have flipped. Uh, is it great that it came on the same weekend? Does that send a good message that's coming on the same weekend? No. Does it put more urgency on holding on to some other guys in the class? It absolutely does. And, uh, you know, I, I, it's good that you're in these battles, though. I'll say that. So Florida's obviously been on the on the winning side of some of these battles on the recruiting trail. I think it's natural to see a couple guys flip here and there. So to me, this isn't raising too many red flags yet, but definitely something to keep an eye on. Well, I mean, look, Waller's a good player. Max a good player. They're both top 150 in the mm-hmm. 24-7 composite. Both defensive players. And when you think about how much we've harped on the defense tonight, that makes a difference, right, that you're losing top 150 players um, on the defensive side of the ball. Waller had sort of a widespread – I think ESPN had him as like a top 10 or top 15 player. Certainly when you look at the tape, he seems like a guy who has a lot of potential um, to, to be a difference maker. And, look, Florida doesn't have any difference makers right now on the defensive line. Nobody that you would look at and go, oh, there's a John Grenard – Nobody you look at and say there's a Jakai Polite um, or or somebody from that ilk, certainly not a Javon Curse or anything like that. And so, you know, the more shots you have at those guys, the, the better off you are. I think overall, from a class ranking perspective and those sorts of things, Florida's right where they were before this. I mean, they dropped from third to fourth in the overall points, but that's because they lost volume. It's not because they lost quality. Of, it's not because their quality of player has gone down significantly. I think they went from 92.6 to 92.4 in the average player rating. Florida State's around like 91.6 or 91.7 but they have three more recruits and so from a points perspective they jumped in front of florida if florida fills out this class with players in similar um similar talent profiles as they have in the class thus far and that tends to be how how teams work i mean i've done some work on this in the past where essentially things level out in terms of average player rating once you get to this point in the season um in fact dan mullen was one of the few people who saw a really significant uptick in this towards the end of a you know right as right as early signing day comes in certainly the optics don't look great especially with the defense struggling you figure there's a lot of early playing time and and these guys aren't necessarily interested in that but look the waller flip had been had been rumored for probably a month now so it's not as the i mean and at that point florida's five and one or five and two so it's not as though it was this big losing streak that led waller to flip waller flipped because auburn and hugh freeze are an excellent recruiting apparatus and and waller decided that that was a better opportunity for him or the nil deal that he got was better or they they promised him stuff that Napier wouldn't or he just felt more comfortable with the coaches right and so um I don't I don't blame Waller for trying to get the best deal he can for himself and the best situation that he can for himself at the same time um that is going to be the key Napier has to close on this class because you can deal with six and six for a while if you've got big time recruits coming on the horizon and the issue with Mullen was you 
you could talk about 10 and three, but that was all you were going to talk about because there weren't big time recruits on the horizon to take them to the next level. And he wasn't even able to get an elite quarterback recruit to come in. Right. I mean, you could make an argument that Anthony Richardson was that guy, but he refused to play him. (laughs) And so, and so, you know, he had a guy who was a top five draft pick in the NFL and refused to play him over Emory Jones and Emory Jones, an okay player, but we're seeing the same thing with him at Cincinnati is he's approximately the same player. He was at Florida. He's just getting a lot more reps while he's out there at Cincinnati. So, um, so Mullen never brought in that guy. He certainly never brought in a five-star can't miss prospect at the quarterback position and, uh, and, and suffered for it. So Napier's already got that guy in the fold. As long as Lagway stays in the fold, I think Florida has an opportunity to win a bunch of games downstream. So long as Lagway turns into the guy and, and that'll be the thing is that essentially at this point, Billy Napier's future is tied to DJ Lagway. That's a lot of pressure on Lagway, but that's just the reality is that the quarterback position drives wins and losses and he's got his elite quarterback coming in in 2024. The question will be, does he have to put him into the fire early? Because look, if, if Lagway was last year's class, you could justify Like at this point, that's what we'd be pointing to, right? So let's say, uh, let's say Jaden Rashada had stuck and Mertz had won the job. I think at this point we'd be clamoring to see Rashada because we'd mm-hmm. be going, look, Mertz isn't the future of the program. You got to bring Rashada in. And if Rashada came in and played well for two or three straight games, and even if they lost these games, didn't make a bowl game, yada, 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 it wouldn't matter because we would see the future of the program. And right now there is no future of the program sitting there at that position. There's the future of that program sitting there coming in in 2024. And so that hope, which is the thing that everybody sort of points to isn't here yet. We can't see that yet. We can't evaluate that. Once we get the opportunity to evaluate that, then we'll be able to evaluate this class because let's be honest, if you got a Baker Mayfield or you got a Kyler Murray or you got even a Jake Fromm, all of a sudden things look a lot better when you got a guy pulling the trigger who can, who can put up 50 points of your own, of your own. Right. And so um, what lagway turns into is probably going to be a big determining factor in terms of what this program looks like over the next three, four years. Yeah. And, and I, I do think we'll see Lagway uh, at times next year. I, I do think he'll eventually get the job next year. Miami Hurricanes coming into town to open the season, August 31st, I believe. So that's a that's a, another tough opener like we saw this year. Um, that's why I think with with Mertz, it, it, you're right, though, about the last two games. Let's see how the last two games go. But I think through 10 games, we got a pretty good idea of what he can be in Billy Napier's system here. So well, that, here, that, here's that'll what, be interesting well, to see going into 2024. Well, here's what I'll tell people. I'm coming down for Thanksgiving and my, my son, Max, he's eight years old. I took him to see Utah last year and they won. So he's fully confident that when I take him to see Florida State, Florida's going to win. So I told Dave on Gators Breakdown the other day, we're going to start a GoFundMe for Max um, to get him to that Miami game next year if uh, if they win against Florida State this year because it's clear he's the good luck charm. And uh, so Florida needs to come out with a chip on their shoulder against the Knolls if for no other reason so they don't support so they don't disappoint my son. That, that's, yeah. that's, that, that's the chip. Got to make Max happy. But if Max gives up 50, we got to have some kind of comp. There has to be accountability, okay? Oh, don't we're, worry. We're I'll leave, I'll... We want to hear it from Billy. I want to hear accountability from Max if we give up 52, all right? Oh, he's, so, he's, he's walking home at that point. He's walking home. All right, good, good. So something's on the table. Something's on the table. Good. I like that. Got to teach him. Got to teach him. But all right, maybe he suffered enough if that happens, too. We could give him a break. I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about it. But all right. Well, hey, t- tough, tough week. Uh there uh after that LSU game that defensive performance was pretty difficult to watch but they were if you want to take the bright side they were in it they're fighting like you said we haven't seen a situation where this Gators team they do fight you gotta give them credit there they do fight they don't roll over it's just not completely where we want it to be right now that's the simple way to put it. That's the simplest way to put it at the moment. Like, like, I, like I said, you, you get you get a certain number of like when you got a bank account, you can take withdrawals and you, you get down to where you got zero in the account. And if you take another withdrawal, the check bounces and uh, we're sitting kind of on zero here. The Arkansas was a big withdrawal when it can't when it comes to the goodwill with the fan base. And so it, it's on Napier. It's on this team to sort of build that back. And a five game losing streak and a five and seven record is not going to taste good going into the off season. And it's going to be a long off season because there's no bowl practices. There's no bowl game. You got early signing. They have nothing else going on. And if they're flips, all of a sudden things start to get really hairy. And uh, you know, the narrative kind of gets out of York 
control if if you're Billy Napier in that perspective because there's nothing you can do to change it. Um, and so to me, these last two games, and, and I said this after the after the Arkansas game, is I hoped they spent the last three games figuring out what their identity is. And I still don't know what the identity of the team is after watching that that LSU game. Not and so defense. What I, well, maybe not. There you go. But what, what I, but what not I special they, teams. But what I thought they did in the second half is I thought that they started running power run. They started doing much more gap type blocking as opposed to zone blocking. They decided to do power runs. And ETN and Montreal Johnson were really effective there. Montreal uh, was running hard yep. the other night. I mean, they both were. They both always do. But it looked like a little extra pop. Out of Montreal, well, they also, the they also tackled him like twenty yards out of bounds on that one play. So you know, yeah, they almost ran him into the stands. No flag, <laughs> no I don't flag. Understand why? But uh, I do. They were in Baton Rouge, so yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, no, so this is the opportunity, right? This is the opportunity to put in a deposit. And uh, Napier has two more shots, and either one of these games, and the pre- and the fan base can breathe, right? the fan base can breathe because you look at it and you go, we didn't expect to get one of these games, but we got it. You made up for quote unquote, the Arkansas loss. You get the bowl games. Lagway can come in and get some of those bowl practices. All of a sudden now, what I talked about in the last two games, where if you, you know, if you had a guy who was the backup quarterback who might be the future, you'd be sort of clamoring for him. Well, during bowl practices, you can start to hear stuff about Lagway throwing to throwing to Trey Wilson and, 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 you know, all the lies we tell ourselves during fall, spring and fall practice, we start telling during, bowl practices so there's a lot of good that can come out of getting that sixth win and so you know we'll see they got two two weeks left and uh you know let's get one for max <laughs> do it for max why not max we'll just leave it there you don't have to do the max probably all right thanks for joining us for another episode of stand up and holler for will miles i'm nick newton have a great weekend everybody go gators hey everybody thanks for listening to stand up and holler If you're interested in more information from me and Nick, you can go over to readandreaction.com. You can like and subscribe our YouTube channel here at Read and Reaction, or you can go to patreon.com slash readandreaction to support us, get extra information, and we do ask anythings over there every once in a while as well. So check us out. Thanks for listening.